You're listening to The Interview. In-depth retailer interviews with inspirational people. Hosted by Ben Bland. Brought to you by The Retail Exchange. In association with Visual Thinking. Inspiring retail performance. Hello and welcome to The Interview from The Retail Exchange podcast. I'm Ben Bland. There are now around 1.7 million people in Britain choosing subscription-based grocery shopping services instead of a usual weekly shop. One of the most profitable is the organic delivery company Riverford Organic Farmers. From one man and a wheelbarrow, the business, based in Devon, now delivers around 47,000 boxes a week to homes right across the UK. I'm joined by its founder, Guy Singh Watson, to talk about the award-winning business which puts its success down to a spirit of ethical trading and to discover why his decision to shun traditional retailers was, in his view, a good thing. Guy, welcome. How did you get into vegetable boxes? Um, Well, when I came back to my parents' farm in... uh 1986 and uh, decided that uh, really I had to be a farmer um, it was in my written in the stars or something and uh, and uh, I decided to grow organic vegetables because I didn't want to use pesticides and I think I saw a bit of a growing market um, and I spent the first few years selling to local shops and then wholesalers and then supermarkets and really hated dealing with the supermarkets which led to you know looking around for alternatives why why did you hate dealing with supermarkets so much um well we would see our little gem lettuces arriving on their shelves sometimes two weeks later you know over packaged over traveled anonymous and overpriced and i just found it pretty distressing and if you add to that the way you get treated by a supermarket buyer, which I would say I shouldn't think, don't think anyone should treat another human being like that. Um, you know, that was enough to make me pretty desperate to not to sell to them, to find an alternative. Uh, and I could see the writing on the wall, really. We, you know, we were not, you know, we were not on ideal land. We were 200 miles from most pack houses down in the southwest of England. And I could see that there was really no future for me being a a commodity producer even of organic vegetables because other people would be able to do it more cheaply. And when you say the way you were treated by the supermarkets, do you mean specifically think like having your profit margins squeezed? Well, being told that being, you know, having a discussion at the beginning of the season that we needed 18p uh, for a little gem lettuce to stand any have any hope of staying in business, you know, the, the season and agreeing on that, the price started at 14p after a couple of weeks. They wanted to put them on the promotion for six weeks. And so, and pay me six p for them. I mean, how am I supposed to survive? I mean, you know, quite a, just the sort of ritualistic abuse of a supermarket buyer, which I've seen reduce people to tears, honestly. And they would, you know, someone would burst into tears and have to pass the phone to someone else. I mean, it's just horrific, you know, that anyone should behave like that towards another human being. It's just disrespectful, immoral, and you know, and as a result of a, a to my mind, a completely iniquitous ownership system whereby you know people who are actually doing things are pressurized into immoral behavior by essentially by shareholders who they will never meet but is it do you think that the fault is on the part of the 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 retailers the supermarkets who are seeking the profits or is it is does the fault lie with consumers customers who are expecting things at ever more variety at ever lower cost well, I think at Riverford we've shown that there is an opportunity to have a more respectful 
important in human terms and respectful in environmental terms of way doing doing business and you know doing very well out of it so no i would i would disagree that retailers are obliged to do that you know retailers do what they can make money out of in the short term as far as i can see and if that involves squeezing you know suppliers until they go bust and moving on to the next one that's absolutely fine with them they are and i think they would they are amoral organizations you know the morality is that the customer is always right uh, and that leads to some extremely you know abusive unsustainable behavior um, which I want no part of. How difficult did you find it going direct to consumer with your offering when you're up against the convenience that they have of being able to pop into a, a shop on the way home from work? Um, well, at the time, and we delivered our first vegetable box in 1993, it was unbelievably easy. I mean, I just really printed a few leaflets and gave them to f- friends and family and, you know, shoved them through a few letter boxes. And, you know, we started with 30 boxes on, on the first week and it just grew from then. And when you when you walked up the garden path and knocked on the door and, and presented this box of vegetables, and you'd find out that actually people really did care how they were grown you know, what they tasted like, appearance wasn't everything and price wasn't everything. You know, people care deeply about where their food comes from and how it's produced and, and by who. Uh, and, and so we were just sort of tapping into that. There was a, just a latent unmet demand for food that I guess had a story and perhaps had some ethics behind it. And in those early stages, did you get to know each of the customers you were delivering to? Because it sounds to be a bit like the, you know, the old milk float round. Well, I did. I did all the deliveries myself for the first two years. I mean, we were a much smaller business there. But I do think, you know, there's nothing like, you know, presenting something with someone and, and them giving you the money for it to understand, you know, what their values are and, and, you know, and what they're really looking for. And that was, you know, a very important part of the business. And indeed, when, you know, we had a, a sticky patch in about 2005. Uh, my response was to actually, I spent about a month just going out and cooking and eating with our customers as a way of trying to understand what was going on. So, um, yeah, I think that, you know, you can pay as many market researchers as you want and get them to film focus groups and show it in the boardroom. Why not just go and talk to the customers yourself, you know? Do you and, still do that? Do you still do yeah, the cooking and the eating yeah, with the customers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think it's essential. I have to say, I don't do it as much as I should do now. <laughs> but, and it's probably time for me I to go am. and do it again. But, How does yeah. it work? Do you do the cooking? Do they do the cooking? I would arrive... I'd, I'd get a, I have a few customers who are willing to host essentially a lunch or a dinner and something, and I would arrive with a box of vegetables and I would cook with them and maybe a couple of friends and we'd talk about how they cook uh, and what they like and, you know, what works for them. And then their friends would come around and as far as possible, we'd carry on talking about vegetables and cooking and how they fed their families. And, you know, normally by the dessert, I'd, uh, I had this trouble steering them back to vegetables. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that, and it, you know, it was tremendously useful, actually. Yeah. How do you retain that when the business gets to such a scale that, you know, I suppose there are so many other distractions and pressures on your time. Um, there's a risk, isn't there, of losing that direct contact with the customers? Definitely, and and I am probably losing it a bit now. Um, 
Sorry, losing it sounds like I'm senile, but losing the direct contact a bit. I, I mean, I, I spend as little time as possible in formal meetings. I get very impatient uh, with, and you know, I probably attend one formal meeting a month, uh, and you know, and that gives me a lot of time to do the things which I like doing, which is growing vegetables, cooking vegetables, and understanding and communicating with customers. I mean, those are really the three things. That I do now and spend as little time as possible in the nitty-gritty of managing a business, which really I have very little interest in. Be that as it may, very little interest in the running of the business. I'm going to ask you a little bit about the business side yeah. of it, because what you have is a subscription model that uh, is, is applied to uh, a very long-standing uh, product, you know, food, fruit, fruit and vegetables. Mm. Um, Increasingly, technology companies are realizing the benefits of having subscriptions. And that seems to be the direction that more and more startups and entrepreneurs are going. And they want a loyal base of customers who yeah. subscribe and they know that that money will come in every month. What do you think is the key to making that subscription model work that you've operated for so many years now, well, decades now? Um, well, I would say a respect for your customer and um, a lack of respect for customers is why most actual food subscription models don't work. I mean, tell me one that's making any money. Riverford? I don't know. Yeah, we are making some money. <laughs> and I think, we are, I think yeah. we are the only one. Okay. You know, I don't know of a single one. HelloFresh, Gusto, I think Abel and Cole lost money last year. Um, but as you say, the, the, the venture capitalist world finds it very seductive at the moment and are pouring loads of money in it, which means that they can carry on uh, losing money, spending ridiculous amounts of money, uh, recruiting customers who they then abuse by ripping them off. Um, you know, it's the old classic tease and squeeze. So, you know, you mm. tease them in on a discount and then squeeze them until they go away again. And I just can't, you know, you're encouraging exactly the sort of behaviour which with a subscription model you want to avoid. I mean, you, want, you need loyalty. And, and to get loyalty, you have to treat people well. And um, I mean, so far I'm seeing no sign of that. If you, if you, if you open, you know, you see, in, say you're a Gusto customer or HelloFresh, and you get on the tube or open the paper and see someone else being offered what you've just paid full price for, you know, at half price or even completely free. I mean, how do you feel about that? I mean best thing to do is cancel your subscription and move on to the next one and then get sent an offer to come back and on and on it goes and none of them are making any money i mean it's um uh, so and i think we took the decision about i don't know about four years ago that we were not going to use any form of discounting whatsoever to acquire customers and and our new customer you know our acquisition rate fell by half you know, it was pretty disastrous and it took us quite a long time to pull back from that. But I think we've now got to a position where actually I think we're probably the only people in the industry where our acquisition costs actually fell this year. Um, loyalty, I have to say loyalty is a, a problem because everyone else is training, every, you know, their customers to um, to constantly be looking for discounts. And I, don't, I really don't know where that's going, but I, it's not a model that Riverford can afford because we don't have access to 
uh, VC money. You know, we have to but operate out of the money, you know, out of the profits. But you've that we turned can down make. investor approaches in the past, haven't you? Why, why was that a principal thing, or was it because of the, the nature of the offer? That yeah, you... it just made me feel dirty, I'm afraid. Every time I speak to one of those merchant bankers, I feel like I need to have a shower. You know, um, it's just not a world that, that I want anything uh, to do with, um, you know, and they're slippery approaches and they're going to lubricate my exit, um, you know, and I'm going to fill my trousers with cash. You know, I would ask anyone, how much cash do you need, you know, to be happy? Um, I didn't. I have sold the business to my staff at about a quarter what a venture capitalist would have paid. And, uh, and that's more money than I can ever imagine spending in my lifetime. So, you know, why would I... Why would I sell it to someone who uh, who was going to do exactly, you know, what they did to Abel and Cole? Or, you know, and um, I always say it would be like selling one of my children into prostitution. Okay, that's yeah. quite a... Yeah, <laughs> yeah I do. I feel yeah. very, very strongly about it. I mean, mm. my politics are somewhat to the left of centre and, and my, my dream, I suppose, is that I will show that a better form of business is possible and, you know, can even be more successful than our, our competitors. You must have real faith in your employees to sell, you know, to sell this business that you've grown up from, pardon the pun, from the ground. Yeah, uh, but the employees have always been, I mean, I recognise from a very early stage they were the most important thing in the business. You know, even more important than the land that we were growing the vegetables on, probably. I was completely... Because our business is so complex, because every one of our fields is different and they're all steep and small and facing different ways, I mean, I cannot... There's no blueprint for growing vegetables uh, and there's no blueprint for many of the things we do. The only way I can make the business work is by having highly engaged and, and motivated staff. You know, we haven't mechanised as much as most vegetable producers, largely because of the nature of, of the farm. And, and that's really the only way that we can, can do it. And it's also the way that I would like to be treated myself, you know, as an employee, to be given as much autonomy, uh, as much opportunity to develop my skills and to share the overall purpose of the business. I think those are the three things, that mastery, autonomy and purpose are the three, thing, three things that really uh, motivate uh, people. And, and we try to build that into the way that... Uh, Riverford's run, and obviously that includes uh, becoming employee-owned last year, which has been, you know, an absolutely fantastic success. I mean, we have just completed our most successful year um, since pre-recession, and, and that, you know, in financial terms, and possibly more cons importantly, when I walk around the business and I witness the engagement and enthusiasm and joy on the, on the faces of my staff, I mean, that I know, well, not only does it just make me happy today, I know that that joy and engagement will be what will make the business successful in the future. I mean, especially in, you know, e-commerce where you've got a massively, you know, fast-changing world and, and we have to, you know, try and somewhat keep up with it. Uh, so, you know, we now have, a, you know, an IT department of uh, 30 plus, you know, always incredibly talented people who we've managed to attract to a rural location, probably for considerably less money than they'd be making in London. And they're doing an absolutely know, fantastic job. More green space and more fresh air around them. Yeah, than they, they would do. Have you, know, you often find them having meetings under an oak tree or something, wandering around. And I think it's oh, very, God, very special. <laughs> no, they do. They, yeah. they um, you know, we've had to try and make that sort of atmosphere, mm. uh, you know, to, to retain them, actually. Yeah. And it's 
has been very successful. Uh, I mean, you, clearly you're very passionate about the business and, and, uh, mm. and, and the nature of what you do. But I just wonder, where, where does your escapism come from? Where, what do you do to switch off? Um, well, I do... You I, still I surf? Do, I do, yeah, I do. I, I surf, you know, whenever there's waves, <laughs> really. <laughs> when I have to say all meetings get cancelled and uh, I disappear when the waves are good. I think that's a luxury I can afford myself. I haven't got many more surfing years left in me, I don't think. I, I, I surf and I sail. But actually, to be honest, a lot of it is I just get out in the fields and um, I spend, I'm spending a day a week picking my artichokes at the moment, which is my absolute favourite crop, you know, walking up and down the rows with a, like a tea picker's basket on my back. Um, you know, managing that crop is is also, I find, very um, relaxing and it gives me incubation time, time to think. It's when I when I then sit down and have to write an article or a newsletter or something, I find it very easy because I've, I've thought about it while I'm picking me artichokes or sitting on a surfboard. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds certainly like you're riding the crest of a wave, Guy, and uh, thanks for letting us pick your brains uh, okay. about Riverford uh, Organic Food. Thank you very much thanks, for speaking ben. to us. Okay. You've been listening to the Retail Exchange podcast. Subscribe online at theretailexchange.co.uk and join the debate on Twitter, hashtag Retail Exchange. This episode is brought to you by retail transformation agency Visual Thinking. Thanks for listening.